are done for innovation. Now, it's hard to forget that wonderful scene in Monty Python's film, The Life of Brian, in which the small group representing the People's Front of Judea huddled together plotting the downfall of the invading army. Reg, their ringleader, asks the question, what have the Romans ever done for us? And is met with an increasingly long list, which includes sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, fresh water and public health. Well, in similar fashion, we could ask the same question. What have users ever done for innovation? And it won't take long before there's a similarly long list of exceptions which prove the rule that users are a pretty potent force. For example, deep breath, around the house we've got the vacuum cleaner, the dishwasher, bleach, the miracle mop. Uh, if there are children around the place, then we should add to that list non-spill cups, foldable pushchairs, disposable nappies, Q-tips. Uh, out in the street, you might use a foldable umbrella to help you run to your pickup truck, turn on your windscreen wipers as you drive to work where you'll find your IT system storing things on Dropbox, perhaps running on Linux, browsing with Firefox, connecting via Apache servers, and if you're still producing a physical printout and want to make a correction, brushing on liquid paper to correct the mistake. If you're lucky enough to have the day off, you might go windsurfing, skateboarding, mountain biking, perhaps capturing your adventures on a GoPro camera. And if you're unlucky enough to have an accident while doing so, your hospital will be full of hundreds of other user innovations developed by nurses, doctors, technicians and porters. All of them, and there are many more, reminders of what user innovation has done for us. And that's not even a full answer to our question. Because these are just the specific examples where we have a name and an identity for our user innovator. Behind them is a hidden army of hundreds of thousands of others. In workplaces, on farms, around the homes, in offices and shops, churches and scout groups, in fact, everywhere. What these hidden user innovators share is the challenge of a problem for which they try and come up with a solution, a workaround, a hack, some way of dealing with it. Now, we're only just beginning to get a measure of how much innovation begins with user ideas. Studies in the UK, for example, suggest that close to 10% of product innovations and 15% of process innovations begin life in this fashion. And that's almost certainly an underestimate. Smart companies recognise the huge value which employees, as users of their processes, can contribute through suggesting improvements. Companies as diverse as Toyota, Liberty Global, Fujitsu regularly receive thousands of ideas and translate these to savings running into millions. Users are a hidden front end of innovation. They're highly motivated, prepared to experiment, and they're tolerant of things not working right first time. So whatever we do, whether we're a commercial company trying to launch new products, a public sector authority trying to improve services, a social innovator trying to work with disadvantaged people, whatever, it makes sense to try and bring this perspective to bear. And for every employer, it's a no-brainer. If people are natural improvers, hacking their way around things that bother them in the workplace, well, why not try and harness this? 
Of course, users aren't so skilled at the back end of innovation, being able to scale their ideas, make them work at the right reliable quality and for the right price. That's the kind of thing that might well take a more formal innovation process and many of the resources we might associate with mainstream innovation. For example, Marion Donovan and Valerie Hunter-Gordon may have invented disposable nappies, but it took a company like Procter & Gamble to build the global business out of them. Mr J. Murray Spangler's vacuum suction sweeper helped him keep floors clean without the dust which aggravated his asthma, but it was William Hoover who built the invention into a viable global business. So we're really looking at what Eric von Hippel and colleagues call free innovation, a different model of the innovation process in which there could be a partnership of some kind involving both users and producers, scalers of innovation. Even if we don't go as far as operating a full-scale joint venture, there's plenty to suggest it might make sense to listen to and work with users. For at least three good reasons. They know stuff. More accurately, they understand both the problem they're trying to solve and its context. They might not be able to put it into words, but they have tacit knowledge, which is critical not only in directing search to possible solutions, but also to understanding what will be compatible in that context. Now, that kind of knowledge is often sticky. It's not easily accessible to a third party trying to come up with a solution to a common problem. Users also have a high incentive to innovate. It's about solving problems that matter to them. Frustration, annoyance, exasperation, these are all powerful drivers of a mindset which wants to find a better way. So the motivation is there. But their problem might well be one which is much more widely shared. And so potentially there's a much bigger market in which to apply their ideas. And users aren't afraid to try stuff out. They experiment and learn. They're tolerant of imperfection and they're prepared to pivot around an idea until it works. They're an R&D system made flesh, a highly motivated kind of startup. Look around any farm and you'll quickly see examples of improvised solutions, a kind of scrap heap challenge aimed at fixing nagging problems. But you can find the same kind of approach in many contexts, from the home to the hospital, from the world of sports and leisure to the battlefield surgery and humanitarian disaster relief contexts. User needs, particularly urgent ones, drive rapid experimentation and learning. So, if uses matter so much, when is a good time to engage with them? Well, again, three clear messages from research and experience. As early as possible. Innovation's a bit like dough. In the early stages, it's malleable. It can be pulled and shaped into the right form. But once it's baked, it's hard to change that shape and the results might be indigestible. Research repeatedly shows that bringing in users early is a key factor in ensuring better quality design. And it helps ensure downstream acceptance, since the innovation is, at least in part, based on their ideas. 
Now, the response to COVID-19 has reminded us again of the power of collective intelligence. Many minds focused on trying to solve a problem. And such crowdsourcing isn't just about increasing the number of minds on the job. One of its big attractions is that when we ask more people, we increase the diversity of the input. People may see the problem from a different standpoint and be able to offer alternative pathways to follow. So again, tapping into their sticky wisdom as early as possible makes sense. But a third reason is to think about involving users at the start of the diffusion curve, when the idea is still being shaped. Users understand what will work in context, and so their input is invaluable in ensuring compatibility, that the solution will work in the world in which it's placed. And we know diffusion is a social process, and a key influence on the decision to adopt or reject a new idea is what's called homophily, whether it comes from people like us. Now, users are, by definition, such people, so building on their insights can accelerate and amplify diffusion. Well, last, but certainly not least, if we're serious about working with users in our innovation process, then we need to look at how we're going to manage this. Once again, three big areas to explore. Firstly, how to find them. User innovators don't advertise, we need to seek them out. They're concerned with their problems, not necessarily yours. So if you want to engage with them, the first move needs to come from your side. Now, increasingly, crowdsourcing channels make it possible to ask for ideas and insights, but there are other routes we could explore. Within organisations, employees can be invited to join idea campaigns, contributing thoughts which are focused on helping to hit a key strategic target. We can try scouting for them, hunting round in places where they might talk with other users with similar problems, communities of practice, user groups, online forums and clubs. But even if we do manage to recruit enthusiastic users to our cause, there's a second challenge. How to hear them. As we've already said, users know a lot, but they may not always have the language to communicate their ideas with. We need to find ways to give them a voice, help them articulate their ideas. And that's where tools, especially those based around design thinking, are powerful ways which can help draw out their sticky knowledge about what might work, what won't fit and why. But the big thing about innovation is that it isn't about that single light bulb moment, bing, the one big idea. It's a process of elaborating and refining, of adapting and pivoting, of shaping and learning. So it makes sense to find ways not just to find users, not just to listen to them, but to do so on a continuing basis. And the key word here is co-creation working with them on shared boundary objects, prototypes which give their ideas shape, but which others can add to, adapt and help develop. We know innovation's hugely about such shared experimentation. So the question is, how might we create the spaces in which this can happen? Well, one idea, one answer, is the idea of an innovation space a laboratory environment in which people can experiment and explore safely. And that, of course, is the thinking behind innovation labs. 
And whilst these have recently become something of a fashion accessory without which no large corporation can feel fully dressed, the underlying lessons about what makes an effective lab are also beginning to emerge. Successful innovation labs aren't accidents. Research has identified a number of key lessons about how to set them up and how to operate them to enable effective co-creation. So, given that the answer to our starting question, what have users ever done for innovation, seems to be quite a lot, it might be worth spending some time learning and applying these lessons. Mm -hmm.